So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, one of my guilty pleasures is um, Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an, uds- an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, folks who are basically in my sphere at first to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests, and um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. Sharona Jacobs, who is my uh, guest on my podcast. She's a fabulous photographer. She happens to have red hair, glasses, and a greyhound, just like I do. Um, So this is directly from her bio. She's known as Boston's literary photographer. Sharona shoots editorial, commercial, and commissioned portraits and headshots of authors, academics, and innovators living in New England. While much of her work takes place in Boston and Massachusetts, images of her clients can be seen nationwide. Sharona's work trends the line between commercial, editorial, and fine art worlds. Her portraits have appeared in the New York Times, Wired, Salon, NPR.org, the Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, Bitch Magazine, and many other critically acclaimed publications. Sharona's permanent rotating exhibition, The Boston Authors Project, is on display at Grub Street, one of the nation's leading writing centers located next to Boston Common at 162 Boylston Street in Boston. After receiving her MFA in Communication Design and Photography from Carnegie Mellon, Sharona started her career at the George Eastman House, a photography and film museum in Rochester, New York. Mid-career, she received her master's in counseling psychology from Boston College, which happens to be my alma mater, and then going on to work as a psychotherapist at Tufts University and MIT before starting her photography studio in 2010. Sharona is the author of Mindfulness as Coping Mechanism for Employment Uncertainty, which I think we probably should all read, published in Korea. Development Quarterly in 2008. Much of her conference speaking focuses on intersection of the arts, career navigation, and psychology. When she's not behind the camera, she keeps flexes sharp by teaching and practicing hempo karate with her husband and daughter. And I think she probably needs to update her bio to walking her handsome, handsome tuxedo gentleman named Ori. So she was a fabulous guest. I hope you enjoy our interview. We weaved through uh, Kembo. We talked about um, 
having a visual arts start in life, uh, her huge family legacy in photography and how each generation approached it a little differently. And then we talked a lot about her influence and um, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, hi, Felicia, and I am your host, Felicia Ryan. I almost forgot my own name. <laughs> it's been one of those days. <laughs> my guest today is Sharona Jacobs. Did I say your name right? It was beautiful. Oh, awesome. A thing of beauty. And uh, so, hi, Sharona. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here today. Thank you. So we are, as always, in the glamorous basement of MATV looking at this, I won't say horrible, but really... Uh, interesting picture of fruit that is painted on velvet canvas. <laughs> the velvet's still life. <laughs> it's lovely. It's so lovely. Um, so I always start usually by telling people how I know my guest. Um, so we we ended up being Facebook friends because we were introduced through our lovely mutual friend, Karen Blum. Fabulous who I have known for a bunch of years now. We started out working development together at MassArt. And um, you and I bonded over the fact that we both have red hair, glasses, and greyhounds. Very true. And I, she was funny because she listened to one of my podcasts, and she's like, you should ask Sharona if she would be a guest on your podcast. She'd be an interesting interview. And I was like, I've already asked her. <laughs> so, Great minds. I know, no kidding. Mm. So um, I thought it would be interesting for us to talk a little bit today about how you ended up doing what you do now, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit about, about your background, and then you know how. However, we get there, we'll cottywumple our way around. I love that adjective. That's fantastic. Okay, so what I do, I am known as a literary photographer, which is a really fancy term just to say that I hope happen to photograph a lot of authors for their book jackets, for their promotional materials, and all of the lovely marketing that goes into promoting authors. And it is a really interesting group of people to work with because authors really, really would probably rather do almost anything but get their photograph taken because like many artists, they really would prefer their art to be their calling card, their representative to the world rather than what they happen to look like. And so um, I love it because uh, not only do I get an incredibly interesting, deep group of people to work with that have wonderful stories that make their trade by their stories, mm-hmm. but I get to pull all that into their portrait and it's um, it's such a fun thing to do as a photographer because I get to read their work and pull from it who they are and and let that be the face uh, of that particular author to the world, which is really one of the most fantastic things in the world. You are amazing because, you know, you just kind of very um, eloquently explain what you do, but... 
what you do is such an incredible amalgamation of different skill sets mm. that so most people don't like having their pictures taken. True. I'm sure authors True. or writers mm. putting myself, you know, loosely in that category as well. Mm-hmm. Really hate having our pictures yes. taken. Yes. Yes. I had one very honest individual say, listen, you're great. I love your work, but I would rather be getting a root canal than being photographed. <laughs> and I've seen your photographs and they're gorgeous like gorgeous and you can see how you're working to capture the essence of who that person's personality is so not only they're gorgeous photographs but they're gorgeous photographs um, where you see sort of unique characteristics of the person Um, and it also draws you into the point where I may or may not know who that author is Mm -hmm. or that writer or that speaker or that CEO Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. but I'm curious when I see their photograph, like I want to kind of know a little bit more about them. That is the best compliment you could ever give me. So thank you. That's exactly what I want. I want people to see the photograph and say either that's somebody I really want to get to know or maybe even a sense of familiarity or resonance, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, That's exactly what I want. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And you take some really amazing pictures of uh, your family and, of course, your dog. The greyhound. (laughs) Yes. Is he an interesting subject for you as well? He is. It's so funny. So um, I adopted my greyhound, Ori, this past summer, and he is an enormous, enormous creature, and um, but with a very quiet soul. And so I, he actually is sort of my studio hound. He sometimes gets his photograph taken with the authors as well because I, 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 on my personal Facebook, I don't just put you know, my, my work stuff, but I, as, as you mentioned, I put up a lot of pictures of family and friends and, of course, now the hound. And he's so much fun to photograph. He's got such great structure. And, and greyhounds can either be the most elegant creatures in the world or the weirdest, oddest, most alien-looking and I actually really enjoy making him look, I mean, the contrast between the beautiful, elegant, well-lit shot and the, the derp, as we call it, when they're just upside down with their yeah. tongues sticking out and doing their goofy greyhound grins. Um, so, yes, he's super fun to photograph. He is, too, like having ha- only met him the one time so that our our guys could get together. Because yes. I also have an adopted greyhound named Arnie. Yay. And he is a gorgeous boy, but yes. he is the biggest dodo poopy head in the world. <laughs> he is like having a baby deer in the house. Oh, He's yes. just knocking into shit and yes. and we can swear because it's public access. Oh sweet. <laughs> this is great. Um but he your your guy is such a he's such a um well, he's a tuxedo, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So he's very elegant and quiet and kind of like a gentleman. He is and gentle. My guy is like <laughs> He's just a big, he's amazing. He's a big dork. He is such a big dork and he is what they call, he's high on the confidence scale. Mm -hmm. So he's very mischievous and he's a thief and he, um, he knows when he's being naughty and we catch him in the act and he turns around and he wags his tail and he, <laughs> he doesn't his, even have the decency to look he guilty. He does not care. <laughs> he does not look guilty. He doesn't even know what it is really to be scolded. Like sometimes he gives us sad eyes, mm-hmm. but the sad eyes are really like, oh, I didn't get to eat that thing that you took away from me. <laughs> uh, does that mean I'm not going to get a treat? Or like Almost. he's just super high on the confidence scale. So. Yeah, yeah. It's no. nice for him to be around somebody who's more well-behaved. Oh, and 
Ori loves Arnie because Arnie's just so much fun and so sweet. Yeah, Ori was very sweet with him. I I was concerned because I've not had Arnie interact with a ton of Mm -hmm. other dogs. Mm -hmm. And the dogs that he has interacted with have been mostly smaller dogs, which he loves. Mm -hmm. Loves small dogs. Yeah, Ori too. The little, the small. At first, it's so funny. A friend of mine got a very tiny little white curly-haired dog. I think it's called a Bichon Frise or something oh, like gosh. that. And the thing is a puppy. It's the size of a rabbit. And the first time that Ori met this dog, the dog was in a rabbit costume. <laughs> <clears throat> and for those of you who don't know greyhounds, formerly racing greyhounds, which is what our two boys are, yes, um, th- their living was chasing something that looked like a rabbit around a track to right. make right. You know, people have bets on them. Um so he first saw this tiny, white, curly-haired dog with the bunny ears and got super excited about this. And he was getting all revved up. He was trembling. His lips were doing a weird Elvis thing. <laughs> like He was like vibrating. And I was thinking to myself, does he want to meet the dog or does he want to eat the dog? Yes. I was not sure. But now they are the best of friends. So thank goodness. I had a couple moments of, ooh. How's this yeah. going to go? And you never know whose who's animal has high prey drive like exactly. that. And yes. we were concerned because Arnie was uh, – he was fairly successful when mm-hmm. he was a racer because you get his racing record. Right. We got his racing right, record. Right, right, right. We have every race he ever ran, where, where he placed, how he actually did in the race. Mm-hmm. And they will give you the observations of how he ran the race because I assume that's how – people would form bets on him on that future races. Yeah. And he was like an aggressive boy who liked to come from the outside. And come on down. And we were always concerned that, oh, God, you know, so we're going to have to just be mindful of the fact that we don't want him to eat either our friends in the backyard yep. or our neighbor's dogs or people yes. we meet on the street. Yes. Awkward. And he or has cats. Yeah. N- no, no interest. That's, doesn't chase. That's fabulous. Every time I send about into the backyard, our our yard is completely fenced in. I always say, please don't eat any squirrels. <laughs> Please don't, don't eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat don't it. Don't do it. Don't eat it. Uh, I have a greyhound story for you. Tell you me. Right? Okay. So this is the other night. So at night when we let him out, I always try to visually scan the yard just to make sure there's no uh, creatures out there. And mm. we have kind of bistro lights on our porch, which do a fair job of illuminating most of the corners. Because mm-hmm. he's dark, I can't always see him. But I have a small baseball bat that I keep it ready in yeah, case. Just in case. And I'm always thinking, I'm thinking it is to protect him, but perhaps it may also be to... Um, let make him drop something. Not yes. that I would beat him with a bat, but no, no, no. I know what you mean. Um, and so I'm always kind of I I gently close the back door so that because of the weather, just mm-hmm. if it's freezing out. Mm-hmm. And I heard what I thought was ah, like screaming, mm-hmm. which greyhounds are known to be screamers. They do. And I opened the back door and I ran out in my pajamas with the bat and he comes plopping up the stairs and he's like all excited and I'm like looking at him going, uh, checking him out like, are you okay? What bit you? Are, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And he ran back down the stairs to the side fence and he's like doing this dance and screaming and crying. Oh boy. And I looked down the driveway and my 
fiance had come home and was parking the car. Oh, that was so, it. So he oh was my excited God. to greet. Oh my goodness! So it was a daddy's home thing. Thank goodness! I was like, oh. so I'm vibrating with the bat in my hand, like, who do I have to kill? <laughs> and, I, and I said, I almost didn't recognize fiance too. I was like, what are you doing by the car? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I just came home. Arnie saw me, and I was like. Like, my heart was beating through my head. Like, has Ori ever made a sound where you're like, oh, my God, he's dying? He makes the weirdest noises. Most of the time, he's eerily silent. Greyhounds, unlike other species of dogs, a lot of them aren't big barkers. And mine rarely barks. Um, He makes weird, deep groaning noises when he's very happy. He sounds like a humpback whale. It is like, so greyhounds have these incredibly deep chests. They have the biggest hearts of Mm -hmm. any dog. Um, And so they're very resonant. And he makes these deep groans. Like, I I can't even imagine him. It's like, Like, it's the deepest. And when the first time I heard, I was like, good Lord, what just happened? Did a barge come through? Like, (laughs) what is this? But he was just happy. And the one time I've ever heard him bark is every once in a while if the doorbell rings, he'll do a a high-pitched yip. And I looked at him. I'm like, you're this enormous, enormous dog. Even for greyhounds, he's very, very tall. Yes. And I'm like, why do you have this high-pitched yip? Where did that come from? But he will uh, occasionally wail, and it sounds like a woman in distress. Yes. If I, uh, particularly at the beginning when he needed to keep his eyes on me all the time, and I had the temerity to go one floor up. Um, we heard a few whales, which was lovely when I first had clients over. <laughs> because at first I thought, oh, I'll just keep them in another room for any clients that may either be allergic or just not comfortable with dogs. Mm-hmm. And now I just ask, are you okay with dogs? And for people who aren't, like, I'll still keep them away. He'll make a few whining noises, but he'll settle down. But otherwise, he just lays like a dead animal in front of the studio door <laughs> until we're done. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> people just have to walk over him. I'm moving lights. I'm moving light modifiers, and we're just all walking over the enormous, enormous dog who is the size of a thoroughbred colt. He is literally the size of a thoroughbred colt. So. He is he is so beautiful, too, and he's so tall. I was shocked when I first saw him because I, I sometimes forget how big Arnie is, mm. and then I see the faces of people when we're walking down the street who are terrified oh, of yeah. him, yeah. terrified, and I think, oh, my God, he's like the biggest, goofiest baby in the world he'll yeah. never hurt you yeah and i've tried to learn in different languages how to say no good boy <laughs> i live in malden malden's very diverse mm-hmm. so you know i might be meeting someone who's asian or haitian or um spanish or portuguese or whatever and i'm trying to think of the words for like no no he's good he's a good boy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and some people get it, and other people are like, they'll just cross the street because they're just petrified size. Yeah, people tend to have two reactions. One is abject fear, mm-hmm. and the other one is, wow, what is that? Is it a horse? Is it a yes. deer? It is the weirdest looking thing. And also, greyhounds wear a lot of weird clothing because they have no body fat and no hair. Literally, my dog has a bald behind. Yes, he and does. Yes, he does. <laughs> which is very common with former racing greyhounds. They, It's still unknown why. It's kind of like, oh, is it the stress of racing? Is it a breed thing? Who knows? And sometimes they grow hair back after being retired, and sometimes they don't. But he's always, suffice to say, wearing some get Mm -hmm. up to cover him and so people you know that helps to make a giant black dog look a little less fearsome if he's wearing you know a quilted jacket 
jacket and booties. <laughs> Arnie came to us. Uh, so his gotcha date is coming up on a year because it was the end of April we got him. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, he was my first greyhound, but he was not my fiance's first greyhound. My mm. first, my fiance had, a, uh, I think, five other dogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he was like really stuck on the breed. And each dog is an individual and different, but there are some generalities to greyhounds like you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And my guy came, and he did have bald haunches. Yeah. And he had a bald end of his little tail. Oh. And um, he was in pretty good shape. He was thin, but he was in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. He wasn't too chewed up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was funny because when we brought him to the vet for his first checkup, we thought, okay, so he's going to have a traditional dog reaction to the vet, which is going to be petrified. Mm-hmm. He loved it. Yes. He loved everything about it. He loved sniffing. He loved meeting everyone. He loved the cookies. He loved well, the biscuits. Yes, he loved yes. the doctor. He kissed everybody. He cried when they closed the door because yes. he could hear people outside. Yes. And the vet said, you know, his his hair will grow back. It, that was for, at least for um, Arnie, that was nutrition related. Mm, okay. So, and it did. So he's he's not bald on his haunches anymore and his tail has kind of poofed up. So he's he a has beautiful a, boy. He really he is. is a beautiful boy. Yeah, he is. Yeah, Ori loves the vet too. It's the weirdest thing. He loves the vet. He drags me to the vet when we go on our walks, and he will stand outside the vet if it is closed and make mournful whining noises. I don't understand. He's like a not dog. (laughs) They are. They're like not dogs. They're not dogs. Arnie is, uh, yeah, he's... He has days when uh, Mondays are hard because everyone has gone back to school or work. Mm-hmm. So you're you're a work from home person, but yes. you have people that come in. So yes. I'm sure Ori thinks that they're just there to visit him. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, my my upstairs is my studio and my office, and we have a parading cast of characters from the authors themselves to the hair and makeup people and all that. And Ori, of course, has to make friends with everybody. Um, it's so funny. I think he can start to like recognize which makeup artist is which based on like the smell of the hairspray. <laughs> probably. He probably can. Even my, my daughter who's 11, she will sometimes come home after work and be like, oh, Chrisanne was here <laughs> or Carrie was here. And it's funny little things that happen when your studio is part of your home. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he is the welcome committee at this point in time. Do you think he has any potential to be a therapy dog? He absolutely does. It's actually oh. on my sort of to-do list when I have a free moment because he is exactly the right height that no one has to lean down to pet him. Oh, sweetheart. So for people with arthritis or anything like that, he's perfectly at hip or rib level, mm-hmm. depending on how petite or tall you yeah, are. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's something he would love to do. And he also just seems to get it. Probably Arnie does too when people you know, feel really warmly towards animals and he tends to lean on those people. So yeah, greyhounds, yeah. they show affection by leaning against people and mm-hmm. just putting their body weight on them, which if you're a small person might knock you over a little bit. But um, it's very sweet. I think because Arnie's got such huge confidence, he needs, we've, this is on my to-do list, is to get him a little bit of manners training mm, because mm-hmm. he um, he's not a great listener. He does resource guard. So 
you know, he's not great with toys or food or sharing. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, And he might be a little too aggressive in a situation like that. Like, Mm -hmm. so he's visiting patients in a hospice. He'd be more interested with eating their food than he would be. Listen, I get that. (laughs) I get that. A hundred percent. So do you think with with your background and the fact that you now have this – a business partner? Should we call Ori a business partner? <laughs> My studio <laughs> assistant. And a yeah. studio assistant. Uh, do you think your background with psychology sort of informs how you take It lectures? 100% does, yes. Yeah, because for me, one of the biggest challenges and joys, I have to say, first and foremost, is how do I – how do I combine all these different things together? Who the author is, what their background is, what their how they want to be perceived by the world too? Because mm-hmm. it's not a snapshot, you know. That I want there to always be an element of authenticity and a really true representation of somebody. But I'm also going before I ever pull out the camera or the lights, I sit down and I have a cup of tea with every single client. So not only am I asking all the questions about their book and how they want to be perceived and um, who their audience is, who they're trying to reach, but I'm also getting sort of a a shortcut to how do they sit? What are their, what's their body language like when they don't have this giant piece of equipment in their face? You know, um, and I actually think that, yeah, Ori, particularly for the people who are dog lovers, you know, they relax right away because, you know, they have something to interact with. There are some, a lot of writers who will sometimes come in and say they're nervous about the process, mm-hmm. um, which is completely understandable. Unless you are someone who, who your profession is to be in front of the camera, it's just yeah. a very awkward scenario. It's it is. not a natural thing to have a camera in your face and be told to act natural. Like that's one of my biggest pet peeves actually is when photographers say smile and I say, you know, that's your job. That's your job as a photographer to put your, your client or your subject at ease and not to tell them what to do, but to get them to react to you in a normal and and authentic way. Yeah. Early on when I was younger, I had a stint where because I was tall, (laughs) I uh, did some modeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was used to having my picture taken and actually liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then comes a point at which you start to become more self-conscious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I hadn't had my picture taken sort of professionally in a very long time. And I had uh, a bunch of pictures taken it was almost seven years ago or five years ago now. Mm-hmm. And the photographer did a really great job. Oh, good. And had me tell stories. Perfect. And some of the really fun pictures that she took of me I'm making a face I'm going like telling like a story or I'm like wiping my eye or I'm looking down or I'm looking up and they're not that like hi yes yes and I just thought you know if I ever envisioned having a book and having that and you know photography portrait I hate when people are like barefoot and cross-legged <laughs> or like they have the sort like, of cliche. They have their finger on oh, yeah. the thought, the like hmm, hmm. picture. Let's and put I was our like, chin on I'm the always like, I'd love to be wearing like hobbit feet and have that picture that taken. That would be amazing. Or have um, my fiance, one of the best pictures. And best presents he gave me for Christmas was he gave me tiny hands. So little <laughs> I saw that picture on Facebook. It's amazing. I like to have like the thoughtful pose with the tiny hand. Your expression and, was everything. And be like, mm, or like, 
whoops with, with the, the fingers in front of you yeah obviously everyone wants to look beautiful mm -hmm. in their picture but yes. i think you know like you said authenticity is beautiful yes but believe me i'm also thinking about what is flattering all the time right right so it is a balancing act you want the photo to be true you want it to be flattering you want the light to be gorgeous and interesting and intriguing yeah but most of all i am really the the sitting down and having the tea chat where i'm trying to figure out what's really important to the author right that's where i'm pulling everything else from first and foremost that's cool do you have a preference in terms of or do people have a preference in terms of black and white versus color um what I will say is because I, I have um, an ongoing show downtown at Grub Street, with the, which is this uh, novel incubator and writers, or, mm -hmm. writers organization right by Boston Common. And I have a gallery there of um, about four foot tall black and white portraits. Oh, they're four foot tall. Yeah. Oh, that's they're amazing. Huge. They're beautifully printed by um, this amazing master printer named Bob Korn, who's works out on the Cape and he does all the work for the Getty and he, his work is incredible. But these beautiful author portraits in black and white. So a lot of people are coming to me because they've seen that mm -hmm. and they have that in the back of their mind. But I, I am color slash black and white agnostic in the sense that um, even the way I do color is quite subtle. Um, I, I Subtlety and yeah, yeah, I always like to leave a little bit to the imagination that's a little bit easier to do in black and white, I mm -hmm. think, just by the nature of the medium. Yeah. But color can be gorgeous, gorgeous too. Particularly, you know, I like to have a, a, a nod or a touch to some of the more painterly um, lighting styles. Yep. Do you have a photographer that you love that you, when you, when you started thinking about photography, you were like, oh, my God, I want oh, to do it Oh, like when this. I was a kid, I wanted to be... Maplethorpe, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> which is kind of funny when you're 10, but <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Maplethorpe. Or, and of course, I was influenced by Annie Leibovitz, Annie mm -hmm. Leibovitz, um, her earlier portraits in particular, mm -hmm. when things were a little more um, simple. Now she does these also amazing um, sort of collages of mm -hmm. photography work, but I love her simple, elegant. She has a book called Women, which is fantastic. I think it was put out the early 90s mm -hmm. um which i love and um so yeah i was influenced by that now when i was a kid i wasn't sure if i wanted to be a photographer like maplethorpe or if i wanted to be dr ruth i thought dr ruth was like the coolest little old lady ever and i wanted to be like her when i grew up so in some ways i got to do a little bit of both because yeah. of my background in psychology and counseling psychology and my background in photography so i got the, the best of both worlds in many ways. One of the uh, guests that I have coming up, we are going to have a conversation, and I think you're touching on it now, which is this idea that we don't have to be one thing. No. We can blend a lot of different interests in our backgrounds, and perhaps our career evolution is about trying different things and maybe really enjoying those certain aspects of them. Yes. But realizing, like, when you were being a psychologist, mm -hmm. Were you like, hmm, this is the end all be all? Or were you like, hmm, I think maybe there's some parts of this that I need to incorporate to do something different? It's an interesting question. Um, first of all, statistically, the average American has five careers in their lifetime, right. not jobs, yeah. but careers. Yet every young kid is asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. Which I think is, 
is sort of setting up the wrong expectations and can only increase anxiety levels when kids are graduating from high school and trying to figure out which way their career is going to be bound. Um, Yes. So I'll tell you, when I was studying psychology, it was absolutely 100% involved in psychology. And Mm -hmm. when I was studying photography and visual design, um, I was really absorbed in that as well, particularly photography. The visual design part, there was always a little tiny part of me. Like I could see, you know, like the uber design nerds at Carnegie Mellon, which is where I studied, that were incredible. They were, and to this day, some of these people have done amazing, amazing things. Um, And it's great to follow their careers. But there was always a little part of me, particularly when it came to typography and design. I'm like, well, I can learn this and I can do this, but this isn't my jam necessarily. Whereas photography, I just reveled in it. And psychology, I also reveled in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the... And some people will say, you know, you've got this graduate degree in psychology and now you're a photographer. Isn't that a waste? And I just, it boggles my mind because I use what I learned every single day in what I do. If I was the type of photographer to just click, click, click and leave quickly, like some people, you know, it's more, we'll take a different approach. You know, I take a lot of time with every individual client and Mm -hmm. there are other people that will see more clients for less time and everybody has the thing that works for them psychologically and for their career. But for me, I don't want to say what I do is therapy because it's not therapy at all, but there is the aspect where I'm sitting down for quite a long time and getting a sense of the person I'm working with and that is how I work and how I do my best work. Yeah. And it shows. I think it shows. Like it's like I said, you know, obviously your your work is stunning and just viewing it, not necessarily knowing a ton about the people. Mm. You've mm-hmm. you've captured something that's really interesting, really gorgeous. And I love that you said Maplethorpe because <laughs> not that I would say I saw that, but obviously if you know anything about photography and what I know about photography is Maplethorpe, Ansel Adams, <laughs> but I, but I, I had actually studied Maplethorpe more in depth um, when I was writing my prospectus for my thesis for graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I really went through his photographs, and there's an element mm-hmm. of what you do mm-hmm. that is definitely, to me, speaks to Maplethorpe. Thank you. And it is the lighting, and it's the shadows, yes, 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 and it's yes. the, you know, I'm not necessarily the most visual person or the most artistic person in in terms of like visual arts but I can see where you're borrowing from Mm -hmm. that influence Mm -hmm. or maybe I think I can see it well thank you (laughs) yes I like to borrow I think every photographer artist visual person borrows because Mm -hmm. everything under the sun has been done it's just how do you combine things to make it right um so yes I borrow from Vermeer I borrow from from obviously Maplethorpe, right? And and, and um, and I'm trying to re- remember. There's another photographer that I had worked with. Um, he had photographed. I'm totally blanking on his name. Oh no, it's gonna come to me like in the shower tomorrow. Um, who um, is he? Local? No, no, no. Um, he's a professor now at uh, Syracuse University, and okay. he did an incredible book called Fifty Portraits. Gregory Heisler. I can't believe his name. <laughs> Totally escaped me. But I worked with him at the main media workshop probably about five years ago. And he has photographed the most covers of Time magazine okay, and Newsweek and has this incredibly prolific career. But he's not necessarily a public person unless you happen to be a photographer. Mm-hmm. Like An- Annie Leibowitz is like 
she's a name Celeb, at this point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And his work is incredible. But, um, yeah, I definitely borrow some of his lighting tri- tricks and tips. And, mm-hmm. um, and the way he transfers his lighting knowledge into sort of how you would see a painting really speaks to me because mm-hmm. I grew up doing a lot of oil and acrylic painting when I was a kid. So the way he used his lighting analogies really clicked for me. The other thing that I've been noticing <clears throat> with some of the interviews that I've done, um, folks who started out in their early on in their careers or maybe part of what their where their interest lies was in painting or printmaking, mm. they tend to have a different view of their career Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they'll put things together in different ways and they'll mash things up and they're not apologetic about it and they don't feel like they need to stay in one lane yeah 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 yeah. and I think that's part of that creative mindset is that idea that we can do a bunch of different things and have a bunch of different interests and it's okay to be not necessarily unfocused but not um, as precious not as precious about things yeah yeah a hundred percent. Yeah, it's funny because I came from a family of photographers. I was just going to so, ask you about yeah, that. But I took a very appro- different approach. My grandfather, um, we have huge generation gaps in my family. My, fa- my grandfather was born in 1895. Oh, my gosh. And he was British and was a captain in the British Army during the whole trench warfare issue in World War I. So, wow. He actually photographed the trench warfare oh my using stereoscopic glass slides. So that's how far back. And we still have them. That was some of my first introduction to the world of photography was going through his slides and putting it in the little viewfinder um, to, to make it look three-dimensional because the two slides, you'd have a slightly different image on the right and the left so that wow. when you looked through this, this old-school viewfinder, the glass viewfinder, you would see a more three-dimensional black-and-white image. Um, so he took a very documentary-style approach to mm-hmm. photography um, while he was in the Army. And my father, during his college career in England, also photographed, but in a very different context. He photographed weddings and um, you know family photos he photographed anything you know he just started his own little business to help raise money while he was studying engineering Mm -hmm. and he takes a very technical approach to photography Mm -hmm. and then when I started photographing probably around 10 12 my first interest was light and taking studio classes and um, light fascinated me and probably because of the painterly approach that it's all about the light. And right. I didn't I didn't sort of gearhead out like my dad. Um, I really used the technology side of things to get what I wanted visually. Mm-hmm. So I learned enough technical, and I'm a huge lighting geek. But I'm always, always, always trying to think, how does this, how do I use light to make things look three-dimensional mm-hmm. and subtle and interesting and compelling and mysterious? Mm-hmm. That's cool. It's a lot. It, well, what you what you just said. There's a there's so many aspects to it. Do you, does your um, daughter have any interest in photography? She's so funny. Is she is a very visual person. She can draw beautifully. Mm-hmm. She can create these hilarious cartoons. She just can create humor visually, which mm-hmm. I love. But I remember wandering around with her even when she was four. 
when it was sunset and I would say, this is the golden hour. That's when like the hour before the sun goes down. And so she would always notice, oh, mom, we're in the golden hour. Or she'd notice a patch of light or things that um, I might ignore in the hustle bustle of all the things I need to get done that day. Mm -hmm. Um, And to this day, she'll point out beautiful light to me. It makes me so happy. That's cool. My um, fiance's daughter is, she just turned 13. Mm -hmm. So we have a teenager, a teenager officially, <laughs> and she's um, she's a really smart kid, and she tests really well and high in the STEM area. Mm-hmm. But she's a great, she's really amazing artist, and she puts things together. And so she's always like building things. Mm-hmm. Like she's always been kind of like an engineer. Mm-hmm. Like she'll create things that like one of her first little things was she made. Um, a change dispenser for my, my fiance's car. Okay. And it had like little things that you would tap for, diff- for the different coins. Wow. She made that when she was like seven. Oh, wow. So, and, uh, but she's, we gave her, she went of her presents and not last year, but the year before she asked for, uh, the funky little Polaroid cameras have mm-hmm. come back. Mm-hmm. So she asked for one and I was like, oh, absolutely. She takes amazing pictures. She's got thousands of pictures on her phone mm-hmm. that, that I'm just like, you know, half of them are just like her going, or like pictures <laughs> of, the, of the floor or whatever, but yeah. some of them are amazing. Mm-hmm. So she'll take series of pictures and I'll find them in like her bathrobe before I put it in the washing machine or, you know, stuffed in a pant pocket. And I'll pull out these things and they're like, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think that she doesn't even necessarily recognize that she has this great skill. Like, you know, I was trying to take pictures of the wallpaper that I put up in the bedroom and I was frustrating myself because I couldn't get like, I wanted... I wanted perspective, and I did not do that with my phone camera. And so she came over, and I was like, "Would you just take a picture of the wall for me, so I can show people what Mm -hmm. I've done?" Mm -hmm. And she and she got it; like she Mm -hmm. knew exactly what I was trying to do, and Mm -hmm. she was able to manipulate the camera. And I'm always jealous of people who have that visual sense because I do not have it necessarily a visual sense. I'm not great visual spatially, but I am really great with words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you handed me something, I could make it pretty and authentic and you Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. like I'm a great editor of other people's work and I'm definitely own my own work I'm not the best editor with my own work but it's also a learned skill too that's something that can be taught visual visual skills particularly learning compositional skills and Mm -hmm. certainly the technical how to operate a camera whether it be an iPhone to a DSLR yeah that's a learned you can definitely learn that yeah and I think you know I have moments of brilliance where I'm like oh that's what I yes it's perfect and then (laughs) other times I'll be like you know constantly taking pictures of my pocket (laughs) and I'll be like we all have those days (laughs) I'll be like oh okay that's you know but I'm also um like I'm growing up I did a lot of artwork but it was always the messy kind so Mm. I think I had a, maybe a sense in my head that art had to be this precious thing. Like mm-hmm. you had to know how to manipulate brush, brushes and paints and all of that. And the type of art that I do now that's just fun for me is I like to do anything that has to do with collage. Oh, fun. So, and But I like to throw things together. And I've had other people look at my collage work and they're like, actually, you have a really great, great sense of color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and, and I just do that intuitively. Mm-hmm. And it's also the kind of artwork that I don't think about. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it, it, it comes from a purer place where I'm not self-editing mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. 
you know, it's just a, it's a fun activity for me right now. So, and it's probably a, a good balance for the more analytical type of thinking that you do. Exactly. It's perfect. It's a perfect balance for that. Mm. Um, this is another reason why I like to do podcasting and that my podcast is this sort of, you know, winding road of conversation mm-hmm. because I like, I like um, I like it to be authentic. I also like it to be a little organic. And I like to have a sense of, you know, maybe where we're going to go with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm always appreciative when people come and they want to play a little bit. Let's play. <laughs> so you also, um, one of the things I read in your bio was you do Kempo. Yes, I do Kempo Karate. How did you guys start that as a family? Was this something that you're husband started or it started with me oh really yeah I started training when I was about 14 years old in Baltimore Um, I was sometimes the only I hesitate to say woman I'm going to say just you know almost a woman because I was so young but it was usually me and a bunch of guys and I started training um, throughout high school and uh, took a I used to I taught it at the club level in college and then I took a break for quite a while, actually, and started coming back to it about five years ago. And my my daughter started taking it. So we had a, a couple non-negotiables about growing a child. And one of them was I said, I want any kid that I have to learn basic self-defense. Perfect. And luckily, she also wanted to learn self-defense, and she really enjoyed karate. And then my husband, who the, – the nice thing about the dojo where I'm at is that they have um, – an area where all the parents or family can just sit and chill. The um, the professor, the guy in charge of the dojo, always provides amazing coffee. So people will sit and hang out and really provide an area to develop a community. And we can watch the kids or the adults or the in-between teens um, as they work. And my husband was watching Lilia and thinking, I've always wanted to do this growing up. But he didn't have the opportunity growing up to do a whole lot of extra activities And so he said, screw this. I am going to be an adult white belt, and I'm going to be in a class with mostly kids, and I'm going to start. And he did, and that was about three years ago. And he worked so hard. He trained in the dojo probably about three times a week. Mm -hmm. But he trained at home every single day, both on the karate skills and flexibility training and muscle endurance and he actually just got his second degree black belt that's amazing uh, this past month he worked so hard and now he's teaching multiple classes um so you know you're never too old (laughs) he's um 43 and he is strongest he's ever been and um just loving it and I wouldn't be surprised if in his retirement that's what he chooses to do amazing full time I had a um a very positive experience with um, Okinawan karate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a dojo when I lived in Alston. Um, the uh, sensei was amazing. It was almost an all-female class. Wow. It, it actually, I took it as, it was like a Groupon. Mm-hmm. It was an all-female class mm-hmm. to start, mm-hmm. um, which, because dojos had always intimidated me, but I always mm-hmm. wanted to learn some martial art. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the experience. I've never felt stronger. Um it took a lot of commitment, so I was training most of Saturday morning and then twice during the week. Wow, good for you. Um, I think I got through two belts, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and it just it, it it coincided with um, my mom getting sick, so I oh, I, I stopped. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but um, it's something I've always wanted to go back to. What what do you get out of it? Like, why were you drawn to it? So I was drawn to it for, oh, there's all kinds of deep psychological reasons. But we'll just start with I was a very, very small child. And um, I'm still only five one and a half, and that half inch is very important at five one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also had two older sisters, and I definitely experienced some amount of getting picked on. So I was sick of it. I didn't want to be picked on anymore. And I took all that inner fury and I put it into training. <laughs> and um, honestly, martial arts in general is so helpful. You learn everything from strength to flexibility to memorization skills. So you're working your your mind, you're working your body. Yeah. I think, you know, it can be very meditative, meditative depending on the yeah. type of exercises you're doing or even the type of dojo you belong to. Yep. Some yep. are more... Um, there's some that are more, the emphasis is more on self-defense. Like I start off with American Kempo Karate where the focus really is on self-defense. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, in, in some ways uh, that was a great way to start for me because it's like, all right, do the hardest stuff first, because yeah. it was really about when I started, it was a little more old school and you would really, you know, fight barehanded and mm -hmm. until, you know, I had one crazy teacher who even back then was crazy who literally would fight either one of us from that class one-on-one -on -one until either somebody bled or oh, got hurt or fell down. And I, I remember being terrified, but after the experience, and this dude was big. He was built like an ox. He was really scary looking, and he didn't care I was a, a woman or a girl. I was 14 at the time. Um, he treated me like everyone else, which in some ways I'm kind of grateful for. Yeah. Um, but I remember facing off and the adrenaline just pumping through mm -hmm. me yep. and life slows down during moments like that. And I just remember being terrified cause I knew he wasn't going to take it easy on me. I was going to bleed or I was going to fall or I was going to break like anybody mm -hmm. else. And I remember him coming at me and I fainted a blow to his nose. He blocked and I kicked him in the groin as hard as I possibly could. Wow. And back then, you always had to train with a cup, and that sucker rang. It reverberated <laughs> off the walls, and he fell. And after that, he never picked on me again. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a good life skill. <laughs> I'm... Uh... I've always been tall, but I went to school when I was early, so I was never the tallest. I was sort of mid-range. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was very tall, obviously, when I took karate. And my teacher was taller. He was a former Marine. Mm -hmm. Very gentle soul, though. Like, hard on us, but very gentle. Mm -hmm. And um, didn't ever want us to pull punches. But when we were training, um, he would... Like, we would do things like horse stance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He would make me go, he'd be like, you Deep. got, yeah, you got the legs, you have to, and he would, like, put the hands on the shoulders mm -hmm, to go mm -hmm. deeper. And for me, it was a good um, recognition that I had uh, physical skills. Yes. And it was a nice reminder that I had more control over my body than I thought I did at yes. the time. Yeah. And I was coming off of um, a very significant weight loss. So I was still kind of getting accustomed to the new skin and the new arrangement of parts. Yes, yes. So I would leave class and I would just feel like I could conquer the world and mm -hmm. I would kick the shit out of people. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, and it, a lot of, obviously, almost all the training was really about disable flee. Like, mm-hmm. how do you get them disabled so you can flee? Yes. Like, not about beating anyone to the ground, not right. about confrontation, mm-hmm. but also, like, um, standing your ground. Mm-hmm. Like, knowing that sometimes the best defense is leaning into something. Yes. Um, making eye contact, which for me, I'm I'm a really good eye contact person, mm-hmm. and I do that. I've always walked with, you know, shoulders over hips, over knees, head up, regardless of where I'm out in the world. Mm-hmm. That's something I've always trained myself to do. Mm-hmm. And I think because of my height and my size, I've never... I'm able to potentially thwart, mm-hmm. like someone might think twice about yes. messing with me. Yes, also from your posture and your confidence, 100%. So, but that those skills really um, reinforced that idea. Yes. The, the one part that I had trouble with was sparring. Sparring is tough. It's mentally tough as well as physically tough. So the current dojo I'm at now, um, the the sensei, Professor Jerico, is one of the nicest, kindest human beings ever. And his focus, he teaches a lot of kids, I'd say probably two-thirds kids to one-third adults mm-hmm. at this point. And he, his focus is really on character development. Um, and he is amazing with weapons and with katas, the forms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he, he teaches as much about character as the physical skills. Mm-hmm. And he's really beloved by both our own dojo community and the greater martial arts. He's also the most, I think the lack, <laughs> winningest, it's not probably a word, but um, mm-hmm. of any competitor over the age of 35. So he has done the competition circuit for years. He represented the United States abroad. And, and, and he's part of a team called Team Paul Mitchell, where there's a lot of amazing martial artists that have done a lot of amazing work but um sparring is part of the vocabulary there and <laughs> i think i recently spoke to somebody who said everyone should learn to get a hit to the face at least a couple times in their life mm-hmm. just because it keeps you from freezing up it keeps you from fear i think a lot of people when attacked their initial reaction is to freeze mm-hmm. and particularly since a lot of real-life scenarios where people are attacked, they're sucker-punched. They're just attacked out of the blue. It's not like you have a whole lot of warning. Right. And so sparring, even if you never become a master sparrer, at least you learn the ability to take a punch right? and to not freeze. Um, Sparring, if you're like me, who grew up more with a self-defense background, is a hard adjustment because there's so many rules. It is a sport rather than a form of self-defense. For instance, you can only hit uh, like on the upper body. You can't hit the back. You can't hit below the belt. Right. And in some forms of sparring, you can touch um, a helmet, but never the face. Whereas in self-defense, it's all about disable, disable, disable. Yep. You break everything, eyes, nose, groin, knees, everything. Yep. Um, but I'm not surprised because sparring is sort of a mental barrier for a lot of people. And particularly as women, we are not socialized to be fighters. It's not how we're socialized. Right. It doesn't mean that we can't be. Right. It's just that we hear messages throughout our entire childhood of be nice, be good, get along. Um, there's not as much stereotypical sort of rough and tumble. And, of course, there are notable exceptions right. to the rule. There's lots of people who grew up um, much more physical. Um, so... No, these are just generalities. Yeah. But tell me about how sparring was sort of tough for you. 
Um, I had no problem being the defender. Mm-hmm. I did not like being the attacker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can take a hit. Mm-hmm. Like, I took a hit. I had a partner who was about your height mm-hmm. um, and deaf. Mm-hmm. Really? So we had to make eye contact. Yes. Because I had to see what she was going to do. And right. she had to see what my reaction to what she was going to do was. Right. And she was supposed to do a... I forget. It's a sidekick, but it was too... Roundhouse? Sp- yeah. yeah. So she was supposed to pull it, and she made contact. Oh. And it hurt. To your ribs? But I went... Like, yeah. I took one step, but Back. I continued. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of our sparring was in mitts or mm. with the um, pad. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, she didn't pull it properly. And I was like, oh, man. That, Control is so important in sparring. It's so hurt. easy. No, it was a hurt. flick. It was one of those flicker yeah, ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. And oh. I was like, oh, that hurt. Yeah, I bet it did. And we used to practice with not pulling our punches when we would uh, um, spar with the teacher and mm-hmm. he'd be like hit me as hard as you can mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was well, like I don't want to hit anybody I want to defend I don't want to hit yeah yeah let me tell you there is so there's there's martial arts and there's also movements called women's empowerment self-defense I don't know if you're familiar with that is that with the pe- with the guy that's with the guys in the, in the padding yeah. yeah so a couple examples of that would be impact self-defense and impact is a worldwide network there's one in Boston. Actually, here in Malden is where the Impact Boston is. Oh, okay. um, people have often heard the the uh, organization called Model Mugging. But basically, it is training women to hit, and not just women, also kids, middle school kids, um, LGBTQ community, community. They have different classes for different groups. They have men's groups as mm-hmm. well. Um, but it is learning how to work under an adrenalized situation. So they're trying to replicate what it's like to be really attacked mm-hmm. and to punch and to hit full force, which in martial arts we rarely do because we don't want to damage other people. Right. And no matter how much padding you have, if you're going full force, like, you could still really hurt someone. But the way the suits are designed at impact and other um, self-defense, empowerment self-defense type systems is they are wearing a football helmet with four inches of padding around the outside. They are fully enveloped um, in their body with inches and inches of padding. They Mm -hmm. have knee pads they're covering their feet. They, and, and even so, these men, bless their hearts, the volunteers who do this kind of work or, you know, the paid people who do this kind of work, like they are dinged up. I bet. They are dinged up. And, <laughs> I, and even as you're saying it, I don't think I could have a problem hitting that. It's the idea of like you and I are standing across from each other and we're going to spar. I don't have a problem with you. Yeah. Like yeah. if you started throwing stuff at me, I could probably defend. work to defend. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I – I'm not mad at you right now. Like I'm <laughs> <laughs> That's why sparring is sort of an exercise. <laughs> like, that was, that yeah. was always my thing. Like, um, but I know, like, I know I have it in me that if someone came at me, oh, yeah, no, I'd be ready to go. You would be ready to go, and particularly if anyone was trying to hurt your family or oh, your dog. Time. If but anyone's trying to hurt Arnie. You'd have that bat. Yeah. Ready to go. You'd be ready. We, you would take all that adrenaline and put it right back out there into the world. We were in a situation where we were going out to dinner. This was a, a while ago. Fiona was seven or eight, maybe. We were sitting at the bar waiting for our seats, and there happened to be a woman there who was 
probably she shouldn't have been served and she was and she was kind of going on she mm -hmm. seemed fairly harmless mm -hmm. but for whatever reason she kind of latched on to Fiona mm. and then she started to get very grabby with her like oh. wanting to hug her wanting to hold her and I could tell just from Fiona's body language she was not liking it mm -hmm. so I told the woman kind of let go a couple of times and she didn't like being told what to do mm. and finally I grabbed the woman's hand because she had it on Fiona's hand and I don't know where this came from but I was like if you don't let her go I'm going to hurt you <laughs> <laughs> and I said it like deadly seriously yeah. and my fiance is I think I remember he's like six four mm -hmm. and like you know two and a quarter or whatever so like if there, anything was going to get go down he would probably wanted to do it but he's always like he looked at me and he was like wow yeah and I remember Fiona being like I didn't like that lady no but like it came out of nowhere and it was just like I wanted the lady to know like you're messing with the wrong person good for you and I will twist your hand off if you don't stop touching yeah. her yeah you know it's funny I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday and they were saying, oh, I, I don't think, it was a generalization. They said, I don't think that, you know, women, ha women necessarily have that really aggressive instinct. And oh, I'm like, no, no. I think you're just not talking to the right women. <laughs> yes, yes. Because believe me, if you threaten us, if you threaten our families, particularly if you threaten children or dependents, yep. we're going to find that. We're going to find that. And um, women... <laughs> Women are not any less aggressive than men. We've just been socialized differently. Yeah, and and um, and the, one of the things that I've definitely worked on myself, probably since I, you know, my late thirties, was this idea that you can be assertive without being aggressive. A hundred percent. And assertive is a good thing. And making eye contact in public is a good thing. And there are times when you don't want to make eye contact mm -hmm. or you want to be, you want to visually um, tell someone or physically tell someone, do not mess with me. Yeah. You're just establishing your boundaries. Yeah. And it, it doesn't even, it, you don't have to yell or scream, nope. but if you really mean it, it yeah. will come across. So one that came, um, that was, a, a, I think, an awesome representation of this that happened recently. Did you see Gail King interviewing R. Kelly? I did. I heard about it. I did not watch it. So the famous picture is him up screaming and pointing mm -hmm. and her with her hands folded sitting in a chair kind of looking directly ahead. And I thought that in and of itself is body language mm -hmm. of like, I'm in control. Enough is enough. Yeah. Enough is enough. You're going to rant and rave. I'm not necessarily going to. And she used the technique, the psychological technique, when she kept saying his name over mm -hmm. and over, like, mm -hmm. Robert, mm -hmm. Robert, Robert. And I just thought, you know, that's the perfect example of, like, she's being assertive. She's not being aggressive. Because in that moment, if she got up and started yelling at him, too, where would that have gone? Escalation City. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just in terms of time, are there anything, uh, any other subjects that we should broach or any uh, parting thoughts or final thoughts or things you'd like to share? Work coming up, any other exhibits? So right now, it's just, we're authors. It is the season of authors right now because uh, publishing is, is moving along full force. So I'm, I'm actually excited. I'm, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm always, <laughs> I love what I do, but, um, I'm, I can tell you love what you I do. do. I do. I'm, I, so I tend to photograph a lot of literary fiction people. I sometimes photograph 
genre people, um, uh, speculative fiction. Um, I, oh, I should tell you another time about Kelly Link, who's this amazing fantasy slash horror writer, and photographing her was so much fun. Um, but that will be for another day. But um, I'm actually photographing a couple parenting experts that write. Um, there's a woman named Jessica who writes for the New York Times Motherload, um, and she has a bunch of great parenting books coming out. And um, so I get to do some more um, non-literary, or, or, or well, it's still very literary. Pardon me, but nonfiction, nonfiction, yeah. and humor. I love that. She's hilariously funny, and I she actually interviewed. Um, I did a podcast with, with her as well called I Am Writing um, with her and another woman came, uh, named KJ who's also a hilarious parenting person. So I'm excited for that because this is a new genre for me. Usually it's literary, poetry, um, some genre, but now it's, it's the nonfiction. Have you ever met an author that you were like, you know, a super girl, girl fan of? <laughs> yes, I have. So – Speaking of Ori, um, shortly after I got my new Greyhound, I photographed Anita Diamond, who wrote The Red Tent. Oh, love that. Um, who, you know, oh, you know, how many times New York Times bestseller, so on and so forth. She's also um, written a lot of nonfiction stuff um, for uh, the Jewish community. Um, she's written a bunch of stuff on all the different life cycles, and she's warm and hilarious and wise and her mm -hmm. fiction is incredible she recently wrote the boston girl she's just written all these things and if anita you're listening I'm so, i hope i don't screw up any of the names of your books so apologies in exam in advance but she lovely lovely human being but i had sort of come to young adulthood reading a lot of her work mm -hmm. and she had actually asked to be photographed with ori because she'd seen <laughs> some of my facebook posts and I said, sure. And Ori was brand new. And again, he's enormous. My studio is not enormous. And it's full of lots of V-flats, so lots of big reflectors and huge lights and lighting. And so mm -hmm. we have Anita in there. And we have Ori in there. And he's posing lovely with her. And he's looking at her adoringly. And then he decides to piddle right in the middle of the studio <laughs> in front of this author who I so admired and loved her work. <laughs> but... You know what? Life is really perfect. perfect. So I'll always have that story. And she was such a good sport about it. But he didn't pee on her. No, no. Thank <laughs> God for small mercies, you know. <laughs> he did not pee on her. But she was so nice. She's a dog person. She loves her dog. And she was just, you know, did a normal dog. Oh, so when was the last time you took him for a walk? Da, 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 all the dog people stuff. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, but it's like she, you wanted the, you wanted it to be perfect. Yeah, and, and you know what? I just gave in to the inevitable. <laughs> you know, I apologized my three times, and then we moved on. <laughs> and she loved the perfect. work, and I loved I loved the photographs of her. They were so representative of her warmth and personality. So we were all happy at the end, except for potentially or <laughs> in the That's bladder. Cool. That's cool. <laughs> but it was a wonderful day. It really was, despite all that, despite my cringiness at the end of it. But. That you well, should I'm check glad out her he was imagery. able to provide you with, <laughs> with experience as well. <laughs> it's never a dull moment. <laughs> no, it really isn't. So our guys will get together sometime soon for um, some sort of outing. And um, if you think that Ori might like to run in the backyard, yes, you know, he we, would. We have to find uh, some spot where they can run that's closed in. We've been looking at like different playgrounds and stuff that 
we could get some because uh, he's have you ever seen ori actually run it's a thing of beauty yeah they're amazing it's amazing to watch it is something that video just does not do justice to and he just he's that that perfect bow and arrow kind of thing yeah the arc is oh, gorgeous it is and a thing of beauty i don't know about your guy but my guy growls really like he the whole time he's running he's going <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like he's gonna kill you and then he comes up to you and he does like funny play bows and then he, yes. he races around the tree again the whole time though he's growling that is hilarious. No, Ori likes to chase me around, and then I chase him, and he chases me. He allows me to be my inner five-year-old again. It's Does fantastic. he get toys? Does he understand? He doesn't understand toys at all, at all. But he's starting to understand playing with other dogs, which took him for a while. That took him a while, but he's finally getting it. Arnie still has to learn that. He's learning. He loves to play with us, mm-hmm. but he hasn't figured out how to play with other dogs yet. It's interesting watching him sort of you can tell he's very deliberately staying at the same speed as the other dogs. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's got that intuitive, you know, he would be a good um, visiting yeah. sick people dog. He's such a sweet, sweet thing. A caretaker. He is. Well, thank you so much. This was a lovely conversation. Oh, I enjoyed I it. I would love to have you back another time. And Absolutely. if people want to check out your work, they should go to? SharonaJacobs.com. And uh, your website is really lovely. I mean, knowing that you're a photographer, obviously, the images are gorgeous. But um, And then that exhibit at Grub Street, is yes. it? Is it's it called the Boston Authors Project. And uh, Grub Street's an awesome organization. It so. is. Check them out. If you're a writer, it is the place to be. Yes. So thank you again. This was uh, Felicia Ryan on my podcast, Hi, Felicia. And sometimes my guests say... Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Bye, Sharona. Thank you. Thank you.